Mark chapter 9. I will be reading verses 33 through 41, uh, but the sermon will be on verses 38 through 41. Hear, for this is the word of the Lord. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does A mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Thanks be to God for his holy word. May he bless the reading and preaching of it. Believe it or not, Believers can oftentimes become zealous when they shouldn't be. And we all know this from experience. As uh, young or new believers, we can become overly zealous, uh, maybe with a little bit of knowledge, but oftentimes we lack wisdom or self-control. To be zealous is to show great energy or enthusiasm for a cause, such as the cause of Christ. So there are cases where believers can become zealous prematurely. We can be zealous with a lack of knowledge like Peter. When Jesus told his disciples that he was to be killed and rise on the third day, Peter tried to rebuke Jesus and said, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Or we can be like John in our text, who had zeal, but it was directed in the wrong direction. And the reason why it was directed in the wrong direction was because of his pride and his envy, which led to a desire for control. But before we get to John, let us recap what has been going on so far, because this will help us to understand the human dilemma that affects us all. So far, Jesus has been teaching his disciples what discipleship really looks like. He has been teaching them what they are to expect as disciples. But to do this, he revealed to them how he is to die and rise again. Uh, Then he goes on to tell them that they are to be willing as well to pick up their cross, which means to die to self and follow him. 
Uh, soon after, he takes three of his disciples up a high mountain where he was transfigured before them. And on the mountain, God the Father told the disciples to listen to his son, Jesus Christ. So going forward, you would think that they would listen to him, but evidently they have not. When they came down from the mountain, they came to the rest of the disciples who tried to exercise a demon, and they were unsuccessful. Uh, Jesus tells them that the only way to defeat the powers of darkness was to entrust themselves to God in prayer and not to rely on their own power. That is what humility and faith looks like. It is confessing our weaknesses and relying on God. Then for the second time, he tells them how he is to suffer and die and rise again. In doing so, he was demonstrating what it means to be a servant. And this is what his disciples are to become. And this is what the church is to be made up of. We are to be made up of servants. But instead of having the minds of servants, the disciples wanted the status of kings. It must have been worldly kings, but because even the godly kings of the Bible are recognized as servants, like God's servant David. So they got into an argument over who was the greatest right after some of the disciples failed to exercise a demon. So you would think that being the greatest at anything wouldn't even be a thought in their minds or the topic of any conversation. And if anything, Jesus should have interrupted and said, actually, I'm the greatest. Peter, James, and John, did you not see and hear what just happened on that mountain? And the rest of you, did you not just witness the fact that I exercised the demon from the boy and raised him from the dead? But he didn't say this. He just asked them, what were you discussing on the way? As to ask, have you not heard all that I've been teaching you? Yes, this kingdom is coming. And yes, you will be in a better place than you are now. But this kingdom and my rule will not come through my victory, but it will come through my defeat. God's kingly rule will come through the death of his son. And so they were silent. The disciples were a messed up group of individuals, to say the least. But he continues to teach them that if they want to have a high status in the kingdom of God, then they are to be brought low and to serve. And if you want to be rich in the kingdom, you are to provide for the needs of others. He would demonstrate this according to John's account. Uh, Soon after his triumphal entry, when the people of uh, Jerusalem took palm branches and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. If it were one of us or one of the disciples, we would have been saying in our heads, yeah, who's the greatest now? But instead, after he had eaten with his disciples, He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and proceeded to wash his disciples' feet 
as a servant. And he would remain a servant all the way to the cross where he would die for our sins. Then he would rise on the third day to sit at the right hand of God the Father. And till this day, he remains a servant in heaven, interceding for us. So the message he had for his disciples and the message he has for every disciple of every age is, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And as if he knew what would happen next, after his disciples were acting a bit childish, he took a child and put him in the midst of them and said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. We established before that the child here is another way of representing a servant in Christ, because the word used for child in Aramaic is the same word used for servant. And what did the disciples fail to do, as John would explain here? Well, they failed to receive a child or a servant who has come in his name. Why? Well, let us look at our text. The Apostle John speaks out. John was an eyewitness to the transfiguration and he was known as the one who Jesus loved. But John was also a sinner. Peter wasn't the only one who had his flaws in the group. John had his flaws, though he was highly regarded. And John, much like Peter, was also zealous. Because of his zeal, John, along with his brother James, were named by Jesus as the sons of thunder. But because he was a sinner, his zeal was misdirected and misplaced. This is commonplace for Christians, isn't it? How often can our zeal be misplaced? There is always a danger of shifting our focus or our attention to lesser issues in the church. There can be a misplacement of priorities. And not that these issues are not important or they do not need to be addressed. But we may be led into extremes with an energy and a zeal that ought to be directed somewhere else. Maybe to our own personal walk with the Lord. I say this because listen to what John says to Jesus. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And there lies the problem. He is not one of us. He is an outsider. He is not an apostle casting out demons in the name of Jesus. How dare he? Now, exorcism was a common practice, even among pagans. You don't necessarily have to be a Christian or to believe in the one true God to exorcise demons. But in the case of this unknown disciple, he was able to cast out demons, and he did so in the name of Jesus. Now, this was another way of saying that he was a believer 
outside of the group of disciples, much like those who followed John the Baptist. He was able to cast out demons, while the rest of Jesus' close disciples could not. Remember, they failed to cast out the demon that tormented the little boy since he was a child. You could imagine the inner tension that this would have caused. Especially since it was an outsider. He wasn't part of the inner circle of special disciples who held titles and positions. And now their own special status, their status of greatness because they walk so closely with Jesus is brought into question because someone else was doing what they could not do. John sounded much like Joshua when he heard that Eldad and Medad were prophesying in the camp and told Moses, my Lord Moses, stop them. Because this would have been a blow to their ego. Their pride had drove them to envy and jealousy. Listen again to the reason John gives as to why they try to stop him from casting out demons. It was not because he wasn't following Jesus. Or because he didn't believe in Jesus. But because he was not following us. Our group. Our clique. Our inner circle. In their corrupted minds, the disciples had become a sect or a cult. They wanted to be the exclusive followers of Jesus. Especially if they were promised rewards such as one day they would sit on thrones. So they wanted to guard it. And they didn't want anyone to get in the way of that promise. They wanted control over who was in or who was out. Their idea of possessing the keys of the kingdom was that they would lord their authority over other people rather than just opening or closing a door for others. They wanted to be the mediators of the mediator. Instead of representing Jesus, they stood between Jesus and others. Folks, that could be us. Have our words or our actions ever stood between others and Jesus? See, when leaders or lay people in the church are overly protective that they look at every guest or visitor with a suspicious eye and then call it zeal for the Lord, you're well on the way to becoming a cult. Because the zeal may be misdirected or misplaced. Envy is always directed inwardly toward self. John was thinking about himself and his group. He wasn't thinking about Jesus nor the work of the kingdom. And envy is commonplace for churches today. We see the gifts of others and the outcome of their lives, and we desire to be in their shoes because we feel discontent with our own lives. We sense or believe that we have failed in many areas where others have excelled. We find ourselves believing that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Maybe it's for the sake of recognition. 
or for applause for a job well done. Or maybe we have a position or a title in the church and we see someone new coming coming along who does the same work we do, maybe even better sometimes, yet without a title. I know for a fact there are better pastors out there sitting in pews. We've all heard the stories of that elder man or elder woman who have been devoted to the church for decades who always did things a certain way until someone new comes along with new or different ideas on how to do things, the day-to-day or the week-to-week things, not uh, the things concerning worship or the biblical convictions we hold. And, And then the vote passes in the congregational meeting to change something, and now there is conflict in the church over a lesser issue. Why? Maybe, just maybe, the zeal was misplaced to begin with. The zeal was not for the right things. The zeal for the Lord over the years became a zeal for self. Why? Why? Because of our sin nature. Our zeal always begins with self. We want self to be at the forefront. We want our group to excel. And this sentiment and this zeal for self can go on for decades, sometimes unnoticed. It begins well. It begins with a zeal for the Lord and it eventually leads to mistreating others. There is something we must all face, and we must all face this reality that things do change over time, even while the truth remains the same. Now, we can do this as individual Christians, or we can do this as a church, especially when we see other churches flourishing and think that God is blessing them and their ministry more than ours. This leads to a spirit of competition and envy rather than a spirit of unity with other Christians who are working for the same Lord. So Jesus tries to correct their zeal and guide it in the right direction. He does so gently, understanding that yes, John and the the rest of the disciples loved Jesus, but their zeal needed to be directed in the same direction as their love. So he redirects their minds to the work of the kingdom. Uh, Jesus, unlike John, responds with tolerance and openness to this unknown disciple. He describes this disciple as someone who was sent in his name like the child who he placed in their midst. Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. He is saying in a way that everyone who bears the name of Christ is involved in some kind of ministry, even if they don't bear the title as pastor, deacon, or apostle. And he can't go on in ministry in Jesus' name and at the same time be his enemy. Paul follows the same thought when he says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now we must recognize there are such things as charlatans, 
and those who falsely come in his name, but we'll, we'll come to that. So in other words, what he is saying is for the one who is not against us is for us. Like that old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, this man was much more. Jesus gives John the same response that Moses gave Joshua. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets? He is not an enemy. He is on our side, despite whether or not he is working with us. He didn't come in the name of Buddha, Krishna, or Allah. He serves in the name of Jesus. He is telling his disciples that their priorities are misdirected and misplaced. And they had no justification in stopping this man from doing his work. He is going to war against the enemy in the name of Jesus. So he is not our enemy. And mind you, he is successful in what he is doing where the disciples were not. Now what were the disciples trying to protect? He wasn't identified as a false teacher. He was doing the work. And Jesus' name was represented in a right manner. Though this passage has been used often to try to settle differences between Christian denominations because of the often asked question, if there's only one church, why are there so many denominations? Now, I believe we should have a level of tolerance toward other Christians from other denominations But the existence of different denominations has to do with doctrinal differences, which are important. This wasn't what Jesus was trying to address. He was trying to address his disciples. He was trying to address his disciples' pride, envy, and jealousy, which led to divisiveness, both between the twelve disciples and with those Outside the group. They were unbearable at this point. There was a deep-seated problem within the disciples that he was trying to root out by redirecting their thoughts back to him. Back to him. Since this man was doing his work in the name of Jesus, it is assumed by that simple phrase that he was already sound in his doctrine And later Christians will be called to defend doctrine. This is not what he was trying to address. He was trying to address the disciples' sin problem. They had a zeal, but it was going in the wrong direction. And this sin can blind us to the priorities of the kingdom of God. He's asking them, well, what about the kingdom? By all appearances and by the outcome of his works, this disciple is not against us, so that means he is for us. He is just outside of this gathering. What should you be focused on, John? And what should we be focused on as disciples? He is getting personal here. Now, they were busy trying to look outside of themselves rather than identifying their own problems within themselves. We often do this with others outside of our own inner circle, don't we? We can identify all of their problems over there while ignoring our own. 
Also, something he is trying to drive home to his disciples and to us is that we must remember that it is out of God's grace and it is a privilege to be part of this kingdom work. It is a privilege. Now, by our attitudes toward other Christians who come in the name of Jesus, can we say that we have received his grace? Do we treat others with grace? As a church, are we a welcoming church? See, the danger in every church is to overly emphasize the inner circle or the most prevailing teaching of the time. Uh, We know and we realize there is a constant crisis in our culture around us. And that crisis finds its root in sin. That is a problem that everyone has. But every once in a while, Christians tend to jump on the fad bandwagon. And there is one overwhelming sin that takes priority, and it oftentimes derails us from what Christ has called us to do as a church. Even if the world is falling apart, we are to do something. We are called to do something. As I said before, the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. The emphasis shifts, and now the church is all about this one thing. We'll hang banners outside of our churches regarding this one thing. Yet we forget that we are called to be servants seeking to call others into this kingdom. So we should ask that question every once in a while in the midst of conflict. Is my zeal misdirected, misguided, or misplaced? Is it truly for the cause of Christ? Is my heart truly devoted to Christ? Because there is that danger that we can be so devoted to our own clique that we can turn our local church norms into idols to be worshipped. Our convictions can be used as weapons to strike other Christians rather than the means to try to persuade and encourage them of a better way. Our convictions fueled with pride and envy can lead to destruction. He is asking all of us to consider our priorities. This man was doing the work of God in the name of Christ. He was a Christian. And as Christians, they were to be ready to receive, welcome, love, and even tolerate a brother or sister in Christ, even if they are not part of their clique. Or for us, our church. Because we are all united to the same Christ, even if we are separated for one reason or another in this world. And again, Jesus makes this point so well in the following verse. And he says this so as to teach them how they ought to treat someone who comes in his name. And he shifts the focus back to them and who they are and how they are viewed in Christ. He says, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. He is saying a couple of things here. He just reminded them 
of who this unknown disciple is as he is like that child or servant that he placed in their midst and how they are to receive him. Now he shifts and he reminds them of the nature of the work of the kingdom and then he reminds them of who they are and where their zeal should be found. So first he reminds them of the nature of their work. So he is reminding them of the nature of our work. It is not always all that glamorous. It is not always a display of power. It may involve a kind, simple, and yet necessary gesture, such as giving someone a cup of water to drink when they are thirsty. It does not have to involve exercising demons. It does not have to involve a megachurch plan. It does not have to involve a large and extravagant ministry. Because the work of our hands comes from a place that is unseen. Which looks forward to a place which is unseen for now, but will one day be revealed. And every small act is counted for as we work by faith in Christ. So what is there to be envious about? Because the Lord is the one who establishes the work of our hands. And secondly, he reminds them of who they are. Now, this is what I try to do whenever uh, someone comes to me and they are struggling with sin or they're falling into despair because of everyday life issues. I try to remind them of who they are, which flows from who Christ is. And to get there, we should notice a few things. First, notice the act that he describes, the reason for the act, and the promise attached to the act. The act seems to be, seems to be a simple demonstration of caring for one's physical needs, giving someone a drink of water. But we must also consider, who are these disciples? Well, they are known as the apostles, and the early, uh, these apostles were the earliest missionaries sent out to, into the world to establish local churches by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on their way, there will be long journeys, which may involve dehydration. And while on those long journeys, there will be persecutions. So this act is to be considered or found within the context of persecution or dehydration from a long journey so that someone would give them a drink of water. But something as simple as giving an apostle or disciple a drink of water may save their lives the same way that casting out a demon saved that little boy's life. But this is not just speaking of a general form of charity. Now look at the reason. He says, because you belong to Christ. So this can be nothing else than Christians caring for other Christians in the midst of persecution for their faith. So that's why I say this, know who you are. 
and know who your brothers and sisters are. You all belong to Christ. Because what makes a disciple or a follower of Jesus significant in the eyes of God is the name of Christ, which is the name we claim to represent. Not whether or not we cast out demons or the specific gifts that we have. We are significant because we have His name on us. And it in no way can be removed by worldly powers. I've been watching the show, which I won't promote from the pulpit, about a rancher who runs his ranch kind of like the mafia. The wranglers who work for him are the lowest of the low of society, uh, former criminals and uh, stranded orphans. He offers them housing and all that is needed for their physical needs. And like his cattle, he brands his closest servants. Uh, Now, this sounds cruel and close to the days of slavery, but this brand does not just symbolize that they owe him a duty of service or that they're not allowed to leave the ranch, but it also means that if anyone messes with them, they are messing with the owner of the ranch. And the owner of the ranch is the one responsible to enact vengeance. Sounds like a cool show, doesn't it? This in its own weird way, minus the criminality of it and the illegality of what this rancher is doing, in its own way, is what it means to belong to Christ. We have His name on us. So whoever messes with us, messes with Christ. Whoever gives us a cup of water to drink, gives it to Christ. So we are to consider the gravity of how we treat other Christians who come in His name. Jesus says that in the final judgment, the king, speaking of himself, will say to his sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, and this is paraphrasing, Lord, when did we do all this? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. No small act of kindness toward another Christian will go unnoticed by God. And as we heard from our missionaries this morning, especially the missionaries who have been sent out. As a church, we should always consider those who are sent out, whether home or foreign. It seems like the U.S. has become the mission field today. So we ought to consider our missionaries, both in our prayers and our giving in our receiving of them. Look at the promise. 
the one who gives one of the disciples a cup of water to drink for the sake of Christ will by no means lose his reward. Why? Because it was an act of faith, from faith in Christ. As they did it to the least of the disciples, they did it to Christ. And notice, at this point, this should have been a spark in their minds. Their zeal had to be redirected toward Christ. That's what he was saying. He shifted from, for whoever is not against us is for us, to know who you are. As who you are, you are in Christ. So you are in me. Because ultimately, it is about Christ. See, John developed a a them and us mentality, uh, trying to protect his own position with Jesus. And he didn't realize that they were all on the same side. And the issue was not about John and his group versus this unknown disciple. The issue for us is not our church versus that church. The issue is whether the man was for or against Jesus. This is about whether our churches are for or against Jesus. It was about Jesus. But John made it about himself and the group. There is no other foundation for the church but Jesus. We can be tempted into making church about ourselves rather than Jesus. We should ask of ourselves, is Grace Presbyterian Church more important than Jesus? Or are we the fruit of Jesus' work in us? Yes, we are His bride. Yes, we are significant. But we are not called to be set up as idols to be worshipped. My way or the highway? Well, is Jesus on that highway? The church's zeal must prioritize Christ and Him crucified. And notice, in doing so, we become a welcoming church. Being a welcoming church is not about us being nice people. It is about Christ and what He has done for us. It is about what Christ has done for sinners. Remember, Christ will go to the cross and die for this unknown rogue disciple. And he will die for us. And we all stand as witnesses of his grace. Listen to what Paul says to the Romans. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Many of the Romans, if not all of them, did not meet Christ. So how did he welcome them? By receiving them into his kingdom by his grace. And this is how Christ has welcomed you. So how have we misplaced our zeal? Can we confess our envy, redirect our zeal toward Christ? 
and serve the one who freely welcomes us. Support our missionaries. Receive them. Receive any visitor who comes in his name. Are we a welcoming church willing to receive the work of others? Let us pray.